Chapter Fourteen of the Girl at Central by Geraldine Bonner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen. Now I don't believe if I gave you twenty guesses, you'd know what I did when I heard those words. Burst out crying. It wasn't because I wanted Cokesbury to be executed. It wasn't because I wanted the reward. It wasn't even that I was so crazy to have Jack Reddy exonerated. It was just because I was so disappointed, so foiled, that I couldn't seem to bear it. I cried so hard that I didn't know what I was doing, and I suppose that's the reason I leaned on Babbitt's shoulder, it being the nearest thing handy. He brought me up to my senses, patted me on my arm, and saying sort of soothing, as if he was comforting a child who'd broken her doll. There, there, don't cry. It'll be all right. We'll get the right man. Don't take it to heart that way. Then I began to laugh, for it did seem so comical. Me crying because Cokesbury wasn't a murderer, and Babbitt's telling me not to take it to heart as if I'd been disappointed in not seeing the electrocution. The laughter and tears got mixed up together, and I don't know where I'd have landed if I hadn't seen he was getting frightened and wanted to call Mrs. Galloway. That pulled me up, and I got hold of myself. In a few minutes we were sitting side by side in front of the stove, the storm over, all but a little hiccupy kind of sob that came upon me unexpected at intervals. For the next hour we sat there, without moving, while Babbitts told me Cokesbury's story. I'll put down what he said as near his words as I can remember. The way he told it was better than any of the newspaper accounts, even his, though he got a raise of salary for the way he'd handled it. Cokesbury says he didn't kill Sylvia Hesketh, and I believe him, and so do the Whitneys. Besides, the corroborative evidence is absolutely convincing. He is not a murderer, but he's a coward. No good at all. And that explains why he didn't come out after the crime and tell what he knew. Instead, he got in a panic, lost what little nerve he had, and was skipping out to Europe when you nabbed him. He was in love with Sylvia Hesketh. If you call that sort of thing love, Anyway, instead of being simply what you might describe as a beau of hers, he was mad about her. I fancy even she, poor girl, didn't realize the passion she kindled, but was like a child playing with a dynamic bomb. It appears she saw more of him than anybody guessed. After the first flirtation at Bar Harbor, he came down to Cokesbury Lodge nearly every Sunday, and used to meet her in the woods and on the side roads, and make dates with her for theatres and concerts in town. He kept it quiet, for he knew, without being told, that the doctor wouldn't stand for it. His hope was that, willful and unstable, as he knew her to be, he'd eventually win her by his persistent devotion. It was one of those situations that may end in nothing, or may end as this one did in a tragedy. The girl was foolhardy and flirtatious, the man infatuated. 
very quickly he got on to the fact that he was not the only victim of her beauty and wiles he watched and questioned and found out about the other men of them he soon saw that reddy was the favored one and a deadly jealousy seized him for reddy might have attracted any woman when he tried to find out from her how she stood with reddy he could get no satisfaction she'd tell him one thing one day and another the next she kept them all guessing but it didn't mean to any of the others what it meant to cokesbury all through october he spied and queried and learnt that she was meeting reddy in his car and going off for long jaunts with him he said he was half mad with jealousy and fear but he hid it from her that's the way things were when he sent the phone message that you caught you sized him up just right when she told him that she had a date that was a secret he got a premonition of the truth the way a man does when his reason is under the dominion of his emotions he felt certain that she was going off with reddy and the brakes that he kept down till then were lifted he determined he'd find out and if this was true stop them if the skies fell and now here comes the queer part of the story if anybody guessed it a lot of things that were dark would have been as clear as daylight he did keep the date you heard him make on the phone how could he he had no car or horse or anything only part of that's true he had no car or horse but he did have something what an aeroplane i fell back staring at him an aeroplane in cokesbury's lodge in the garage there that's why he wouldn't rent the house that's why he kept going down over sunday all summer the year he was in france he'd done a lot of flying and was fascinated by it before he left there he was an expert aviator but his wife hated it and it was one of the grounds of dissension after she died he had a machine brought down in sections set it up himself and kept it in the garage not a soul knew it he only flew it at night for he wanted it kept a secret why what for because here's the best thing i've heard about him he carried a life insurance policy secured to his children cokesbury's not a rich man though he had a good business and if he died his children would have had to live on what their mother left him which wasn't much if it was known that he was aviating the policy would have been invalidated so he indulged his secret passion at night the isolated position of the house made it easy to escape detection and his machine was equipped with a very silent muffler no one had a glimmering of it not even sylvia the phone message you heard was sent from the station at jersey city and when he sent it he did intend coming to Mapleshade in his motor when he got to azalea and found the car unmended in the garage he flew into rage as he thought his plans were blocked alone in the lodge ravaged by jealousy he lost all caution and decided to take out the aeroplane 
you remember that there was a moon that night but that in the evening the skies were clouded and the air breathless the darkness and the weather were on his side and he came down in a field about ten minutes walk from the house closing the cutout as he descended he was early and hid himself among some trees where he could watch the front door he says it was while he was waiting there for her that the idea came to him of frustrating the elopement by carrying her off he was laying round in his mind how he would get the truth from her when he saw her come out and gave a low whistle she heard it and came toward him it was not till she was close to him and he could see the outlines of her figure through the dark that he made out a bag in her hand then he knew for certain she was going and decided on his course in all his other dealings with her he had found her subtle and evasive now perhaps because for the first time in her life she had decided on a positive action that she went straight to the point without any preamble she told him what she was going to do and that within a half hour reddy would be waiting for her in the lane he showed no anger or surprise apparently accepting the situation in the most friendly spirit he says he thought she was relieved and having expected a scene with him when he had disarmed her of her suspicions he told her of the airship and asked if she would like to come up for a spin before reddy arrived they had over half an hour and he could take her for a short flight and would bring her down in ten or fifteen minutes everybody agrees that she was a bold venturesome girl and the idea appealed to her as she had never been up they walked quickly through the fields and bit of woodland to the aeroplane she was in high spirits as she tucked herself in he could hear her laughter as he took his seat and then closing the cutout they soared up they rose high about two thousand feet he thought and then he headed east they were winging their way over cokesbury lodge on toward the hills in the distance when reddy must have sighted the lights of longwood as he came down the firehill road cokesbury swears he had no intention of kidnapping her he says he had no definite idea of where he was going that his plan was simply to get her away from reddy and put an end to the marriage personally i don't believe him i think he had a pretty clear idea of carrying her off to cokesbury lodge and that his chivalrous scheme was to put her into such a compromising position that she would be willing to marry him maybe i'm wrong i don't know anyway he very soon saw you can't abduct a high-spirited hot-tempered girl against her will after about fifteen or twenty minutes he was conscious of her getting uneasy and speaking to him words that he couldn't hear but that he knew to be at first startled questions then angry commands he shouted replies but the great machine kept steadily on its way neither turning nor dipping downward then she realized and broke into a fury turning upon him in the dark putting her face close to his and screaming for him to bring her down the noise made it impossible to argue with her 
and fearful of what she might do, he held her off with his elbow, the delicately balanced machine swaying as she seized his arm and shook it, lunging up against him, her cries of rage rising above the thunder of the screw. Can't you believe it? The big ship sailing through the night, with the lights of the farms and little towns sliding far below, and above the sky, muffled deep in the black clouds, poised between the man and the woman, each gripped by a different passion, suspended there like two naked souls in the sort of elemental battle of the sexes. He admits he was scared, and if he could have spoken to her, he would have pacified her with all sorts of assurances. But speech was out of the question and when she made a sudden lunge across him for the wheel, he realized she would kill them both if he didn't bring her to the earth. Throwing her back with a blow of his elbow, he yelled that he was coming down, and as she felt the machine begin its glancing downward glide, she fell back into her place, suddenly quiet, then leaned forward, scanning the country below them. A momentary break of the clouds let a little light spill through, and by this he saw a bare, bold landscape darkened by woods, with the gleam of a large body of water to the right, showing against the blackness like polished steel. He made a landing in an open space, an uncultivated field with a hillock in the center covered with grass and surrounded by trees. The water had drained off this and was quite dry. She was hardly on to the ground, and he was prepared for an explanation, when, to his surprise, she curtly told him to follow her and led the way along a ridge that skirted the lake. This, too, was dry, a fact curiously in his favor, for their feet left no tracks. The grass closing on the trail, they swept through it. She did not address him again till the dim shape of a house appearing. He asked her if she was going there, and she answered in the same curt way. Yes, she was cold. A wharf jutted out in front of the house, and in stepping from the grass to the planks, he made a motion to help her. But she started away from him as if he was a snake making two or three steps into the liquid mud that ran up to the wharf's edge. It was then he thought she dropped the glove. Once again, on the planks, she took a key from her purse, fitted it into the lock, and opened the door. The room was pitch dark, and Cokesbury stood in the doorway while she went in. She moved about as if she was accustomed to the place, lit a lamp, set a match to the fire already laid, and gave him a copper kettle to fill the water from the lake. When he came back with it, the table was set out with tea-things, and the fire was leaping up the chimney. She hung the kettle on a crane, swung it over the flames, and then, turning to him, said, Do you know where you are? He said he didn't, and then she answered, You're in Jack Reddy's bungalow in Hachalaga Lake the place where I've spent the happiest days of my life. He looked at her in amazement, 
and she smiled scornfully back at him. You fool, she said, to think you come blundering in and stop me from marrying the only man of all of you who's worth a heartbeat. She made tea and then motioned him to sit down by the table, taking a seat at the other side, facing each other in the lamplight. They had a conversation that put an end to all his dreams. For the first time in his acquaintance with her, he thought she spoke frankly. She told him of her friendship with Reddy from the start, and how the doctor's senseless opposition had fanned a boy and girl flirtation into a passionate love affair. When the quarrels began at Mapleshade, they found that they could meet without fear of detection at the lake. She was going out there in her car, and he in his. She had her own key, and often, during the autumn, she had gone to the bungalow in the morning. Reddy had joined her, and they had spent the day together, canoeing and fishing on the lake, cooking a picnic meal over the fire, and driving home in the afternoon, the racer towing her car till they came to the turnpike. Cokesbury says he thinks at first it was only the spirit of romance and adventure which made her do such a rash thing, but that, in the end of Reddy's devotion and chivalrous attitude, made a deep impression on her, and she came as near loving him as she could any man. He says, there is no doubt that the meetings were perfectly innocent, and that Reddy had behaved from the start as a gentleman. Whether she really loved him or not, he said, he taught her to respect him. They talked for over an hour, taking the tea she had made, and Cokesbury smoking a cigar. He remembered, leaving the butt in the saucer of his cup. It was half-past eight when they rose to go. Sylvia put out the lamp, but the fire was still burning, and the tea-things were left on the table. Cokesbury said he promised to take her home, that he saw his case was hopeless, and he'd made up his mind to have done with her forever. The sky was clouded over, and it was as dark as a pocket when they went back to the airplane. He had to direct the machine by guesswork, the country black below him, and the sky black above. He swears that he intended to take her to Maple Shade, and I believe him. No man, not even a bad egg like Cokesbury, wants to run away with a woman who hands out the line of talk that a girl had in the bungalow. Anyway, we've only his word for the statement that he completely lost his bearings. He could see no lights, and after making an exploratory circle, he realized he hadn't the slightest idea which way to go. To make matters worse, he could hear from the shouting remarks of hers that her suspicions were on the alert and that she was ready to flare up again. But this time, there wasn't much of the lover left in him. According to his own words, he was anxious to get her home again, as she was to be there. With his head clear and his blood cold, he did not relish a second flight with the woman fighting like a wildcat. This was the situation. She, angry and disbelieving, he, scared and unable to conciliate her, when the twinkling of a light caught his eye 
and he decided to come down and ask his way they dropped into a stretch of grass land among the fields and the light shining some way off through a screen of trees farther away just as bart he saw another light he told her to wait while he went to inquire and walked off toward the one that was nearest it was cresset's farm there he had an interview with mrs cresset telling her he had an auto in order to explain his presence when he went back he found that sylvia had disappeared at first he didn't know what to do realizing that if the story of their flight got abroad there would be the devil to pay he was certain that she had disbelieved him and had taken the opportunity to get away from him she was either hiding or had gone for the second light this being the most plausible he walked toward it quite a distance across the fields and through the woods and brought up at a ramshackle roadhouse at the wayside arbor he stole round from the back side window and there through a crack in the shutter looked in and saw sylvia talking to hines he says he stayed there for some minutes afraid if he went in after her she would make a scene and start a scandal then his eyes fell on the telephone booth and he felt sure she had telephoned either to her own home or to reddy her air of waiting she was sitting by the stove with her feet on its lower edge confirmed him in this and he decided to let her alone he went back to the aeroplane wondering what would be the outcome of the whole crazy escapade he says he felt confident of her cleverness to hush the thing up but he was uneasy his discomfort was lessened when he found that she had left her bag in the machine and on his way home one of the things that preoccupied him was thinking up the best way of getting the bag back to her monday morning he went to town in the state of suspense if she should tell there was no knowing what might happen and he was on the alert for a visit from the doctor or even ready but the day passed without a sign of trouble and he was just calming down thinking she had either found ready and gone with him or invented some story to quiet the mapleshade people when he read of the murder in the evening paper then you better believe he was frightened he knew the bag was hidden in his room at the lodge and that as far as he could tell not a soul had seen the airship as to mrs cresset he felt safe for she couldn't possibly have made out a feature in the darkness but i cried out why if he hadn't done it that's all right babbitts interrupted he hadn't done it but i tell you he was a coward he was in a sweat for the fear of being suspected of being pulled in as a witness of his reputation his business his position he wanted to keep out of it at any cost what a cur i said oh he's that and more and he's ready to admit it himself but it wasn't as smooth sailing as he thought it would be after the inquest he read of the overheard phone message and that brought him up with a jolt he thought in a state of terror 
realizing too late that his silence was more incriminating than any confession every day his fears grew worse he wouldn't answer any phone calls faking up reasons to his clients and his servants finally it got on his nerves so he couldn't stand it and made ready to skip to europe the key was what tripped him up do you remember mr whitney saying how criminals overlooked important details well what he'd overlooked was the key of the garage in his preoccupation on monday he had put it in the pocket of the raincoat he was accustomed to leave in the auto and had simply forgotten it then he went to pack his things he couldn't find it hunted in a nervous frenzy and finally had his man telephone over to miner's place you and the key were the combination that beat him but jack reddy i said was he going to slink off and let him be tried for murder when he could have cleared it all up he says not and i guess the fellow is not as yellow as to have stood by and let an innocent man go to his death he said there wasn't enough evidence to convict reddy and if things had gone badly he would have come out and told what he knew and i think that's true anyway we'll give him the benefit of the doubt how can you be so sure how do you know he's not the murderer after all oh there's no doubt everything fits in too well the police were out at cokesbury's lodge on saturday and saw the aeroplane and found miss hesketh's bag both the whitney's father and son who had a vast experience of this sort of thing say there's no question of his innocence we sat silent for a spell looking at the stove then i said we're back just where we were in the beginning babbitts leaned forward and shook down some ashes the case is but we're not he said how do you make that out i asked six weeks ago we didn't know each other and now we're friends that's so i said and we both sat staring thoughtfully at the red eye of the stove End chapter fourteen